The topic for this weekend is uh, Tantra, which is a very vast topic and uh, sometimes a bit mysterious. However, with uh, some understanding of what Tantra is all about, then it's no longer mysterious. It all makes a tremendous amount of sense. And so uh, to practice Tantra properly, it's important to have an understanding of what it's all about. And in fact, one of the prerequisites that are necessary for being able to practice Tantra is quite naturally having confidence in the method. You have to have confidence that the method will work to achieve its goal, which is enlightenment. And to have that confidence, it's necessary to understand it, at least to some level. So that's what we'll try to do this weekend, is to try to uh, convey that uh, understanding, to try to reach some basic level of uh, appreciation of what Tantra is all about. The easiest way to approach that is from an understanding of what the word Tantra actually means. And it comes from a Sanskrit word. It is Sanskrit, but it comes from a verb which means uh, to stretch out. And that has uh, two meanings here. One is uh, uh, it's talking about something which stretches out for very, very, very long time. So a stream of continuity. And that's speaking about the uh, continuity of our Buddha natures, which has uh, no beginning, no end, goes on forever. And the uh, continuity of uh, fully realized Buddha nature, which would be uh, when we are, uh, let's say, the cont continuity of enlightenment, the Buddha bodies of enlightenment. And out of these uh, Buddha nature uh, uh, continuum, what we get is our samsaric rebirth over and over again with all different sorts of suffering and difficulties which will go on forever if we don't uh, put an end to it. So what we want to do is to have a continuity of practice with these Buddha figures, usually referred to by the, by the Tibetan word yidams, you know, these various figures like Chenrezy or Tara, because that can go on forever. They don't get old or anything like that. They don't get hungry. And we use the practice with these Buddha figures to transform our Buddha nature aspects so that they don't give rise to samsara, they give rise to enlightenment. That's what it's all about. We use these Buddha figures to transform Buddha nature so instead of it giving rise to samsara, it gives rise to enlightenment. And that's a uh, topic that uh, I'll explain in much more detail, but that's the basic idea. And the second meaning of uh, the word tantra, something which is uh, stretched out, is referring to the strings on a loom where you weave a rug. And so the uh, various arms and legs and faces and so on of these uh, Buddha figures are like the strings of a loom and each of them represents a different aspect of the path, you know, like uh, four arms representing the four immeasurables. 
so that uh, we weave on this Buddha figure all the insights of the path that each of the arms and legs and so on represent. So these Buddha figures are a very sophisticated ancient form of infographics, representing in a visual way a great deal of information. So that uh, when we uh, use our imaginations to uh, imagine these Buddha figures with all these arms and legs and so on, the point is not the arms and legs, the point is what they represent. So they help us to integrate simultaneously all the different aspects of the path and keep them all in our minds, hopefully simultaneously. That obviously is not so easy to do, but we work ourselves up to that so that uh, we have the full path actively in our minds as a way to attain enlightenment. So we can see from these two meanings of Tantra that uh, this is not a beginner practice, but it is uh, an advanced practice because uh, obviously we need to understand what Buddha nature is. We need to understand how it gives rise to samsara. We need to understand how it would give rise to enlightenment and so on. That means that we need to have renunciation of samsara. We don't want our Buddha nature to give rise to that. And we have to have bodhicitta to aim for our Buddha nature giving rise to enlightenment instead. And we need to have the understanding of voidness or emptiness, two words for the same thing, in order to understand how it is possible for our Buddha natures to give rise to either samsara or enlightenment. So often we hear that uh, we need these so-called three principal paths, renunciation, bodhicitta, and the understanding of voidness as a uh, basis for practicing tantra, but it's extremely important to understand why and how that's the basis for practice. And that's a very simple way of presenting it, what I just said. We don't want Buddha nature to give rise to samsara, so that's renunciation. I don't want that. That's suffering. That's terrible. I want to understand, I want my Buddha nature to give rise to enlightenment. So that's bodhicitta. I'm aimed at my own enlightenment, moved by compassion that I want to attain it. And how is that possible? It's only possible in terms of cause and effect. How does cause and effect work? It works on the basis of voidness or emptiness. Otherwise, cause would be isolated independently by itself, effect would be isolated independently on, by itself, and one couldn't give rise to the other. So okay. that understanding of voidness is very important. So actually, that's not too difficult to understand. Obviously, we need to go deeper and see the details of what all of this is uh, referring to. But the basic idea is not difficult. It's not mysterious. It's understandable. So I think it's important to start out with that uh, we really understand this, which means we'll take a little while to try to digest it. So I will review it once more so that uh, you will hopefully try to remember. Yeah. And then please you review it for yourself in your minds. <laughs> 
we have Buddha nature. Well, obviously, we need to explain what it is, but that's just simple. We have Buddha nature. Buddha nature gives rise to samsara, repeated rebirth, with all sorts of suffering. That's what it does, normally. We don't want that renunciation. But if we really put a great deal of effort in Buddhist path, then instead of Buddha nature giving rise to samsaric rebirth over and over again, it can give rise to our enlightenment. But I'll only be able to attain enlightenment if that's what I'm aiming for. That's bodhicitta. And how will it be possible to actually attain enlightenment? Well, we have to work cause and effect with these Buddha figures, putting all the different aspects of the path together. And that can only work because of the voidness of cause and effect. Otherwise, cause can't give rise to an effect. Okay? So, try to review that, to get that basic understanding. Then we can fill in the detail. Basis, result, the path that will transform it. You don't want that basis to give rise to suffering, you want it to give rise to enlightenment. Renunciation of this, the suffering, bodhicitta, attain that, enlightenment, it only works on the basis of voidness. Three principal paths. Okay, what's your question? Uh, is there any guarantee? Can we be sure that uh, our implied causes actually bring the result we want uh, instead of some other unwanted result? That uh, can only bring about the uh, proper result through our Tantra practice if we have the guidance of a qualified teacher who has traveled the path, who knows uh, how to do it, who knows what the pitfalls are, the dangers, and can guide us. And if we practice correctly, and not just on our own, with some wild, crazy ideas of what Tantra is all about. If we have that, then we can be assured that we will achieve the result. But it will take a great deal of work and a lot of time. It's not a magic pill. Now, we just did a short meditation 
And I would uh, like to say a few comments about that. Uh, we often hear the words shamatha and vipassana, describing two types of uh, meditation that we do in uh, Buddhism. And one of the things that I like to do is to demystify some of these terms. And so what is uh, the difference between these two? Each of them has an understanding, is focused on something with an understanding. Shamatha is focused on something with a rough, general understanding. Vipassana adds on top of that a more detailed understanding. That's the basic difference. And so when we do the type of uh, meditation that we just did to try to understand uh, what Tantra is all about, what I described and what we were trying to do was a shamatha style. So you try to have some object of focus. So what could we use here? Well, Buddhism suggests that uh, infographics are very helpful, some sort of mental picture. So we want to have something very general here. You can make some child's like drawing, doesn't have to be sophisticated. And here you have Buddha nature, some sort of circle here, and an arrow that goes to samsara and a big X through that. We don't want that. And instead, we want an arrow going up to another circle over here, enlightenment. That's bodhicitta. And, you know, what will bring us through that, you know, to get the arrow up there is the practice with the Buddha figures. So that's the circle in the middle. And the arrow that goes up maybe is dots, you know, so it represents voidness, not so solid. So it's very, very simple. That's what you want, something simple. And then you focus on that and try to keep your attention on that with an understanding of what information is there. In other words, what this represents. And maybe you have to recite what it represents to start off with. That's okay. But then you don't have to keep on reciting it like a mantra. You just focus with that understanding. And if the understanding gets weak, then maybe you recite again what the different pieces stand for. And of course, if your attention goes away and mental wandering, you try to bring it back. If you become sleepy, you try to wake yourself up. The standard type of things. But even being able to concentrate on this with understanding for a very short period of time makes an impression on your mind that understanding starts to sink in. That's shamatha. Very simple. And if we do that, even for a very, very short period of time, 30 seconds, I mean, however long you can, you can do it, before you do any tantra practice, then you remind yourself of what it's all about. Otherwise, it just becomes you know, almost a meaningless ritual. Very easy for it to degenerate into that. Now, Vipassana just adds all the detail into that. So we'll get to some of that detail. It has to do with karma and 
you know, what actually Buddha nature is and how it works and so on. That's all the detail. That comes in on top of that general shamatha. And then when you are able to focus with all the detail, that's vipassana. So again, I find it uh, very, very helpful to have very basic understanding of what are all these things that you know you hear about in the Buddhist teachings, uh, what they're really referring to on a practical level. How do you actually do it? Because if you don't know how to do it, then it's like being thrown into a swimming pool and not knowing how to swim. Maybe you'll figure it out, but it's going to be a struggle. Okay? So let's try again for just a minute this shamatha style of what is Tantra all about. Buddha nature, don't want it to give rise to samsara, you know, cross that out. Want it to give rise to enlightenment, that's bodhicitta. And these Buddha figures integrating like on a loom, weaving all the parts of the path together will get us there. Because of voidness, of cause and effect. Okay, this is what mindfulness is all about. We hear this word mindfulness all the time. It's the same word as to remember, to keep something in mind. So what do we want to remain mindful of? This understanding. We have to remain mindful of our understanding of what we're doing. We do that, don't we, in other areas? I understand what I'm doing when I'm working. I understand what I'm doing when I'm cooking or driving or doing anything. I understand what I'm doing, how to do it. I understand how to tie my shoes. So what does understanding mean? What does it mean to understand something? It's an important question. Do I really understand it? Well, what's the definition? Definition is a state of mind that is both accurate and decisive. I understand how to tie my shoes. 
It's accurate. I don't make a mistake. And it's decisive. It's not that I'm unsure. How do, how do I do it? It's not like that. Do I have to recite in my mind how to tie my shoe when I tie my shoes? No. But if I didn't understand how to tie my shoes, I couldn't tie my shoes. So, when we tie our shoes, you have to remain mindful, don't you? You have to pay attention, otherwise, you know, it doesn't work. And you have to remember how to tie your shoes, but you don't have to recite it. So, that's what we want to, that level of understanding and mindfulness is what we want to bring to any Dharma practice that we're doing, but especially to Tantra, because it's so easy for it to become what I call a Buddhist Disneyland. So just think about that for a moment. This is what we're aiming for, always. Understanding and then integrating it into our whole way of being. Remember, Buddha said, the root of all our troubles is ignorance, not knowing, not understanding, understanding incorrectly. So, the opposite, the antidote to that, which is correct understanding and decisive, accurate and decisive. So that's what we aim for. Tantra practice with understanding of what we're doing is fantastic. Tantra practice with no understanding of what we're doing or an incorrect understanding leads to disaster. You go off into your own fantasy land of unreality and weirdness. So we don't want that. Okay? Take a moment to let that sink in. And remember, shamatha, general understanding, vipassana, detail added on top of the general understanding. Both have perfect concentration. Perfect concentration is no big deal. I mean, it's difficult, but it's not exclusively Buddhist. An athlete has perfect concentration. Perfect concentration with understanding of the Buddhist teachings. Now that's something else. Okay, we want to understand, to be awake. That's what the word Buddha implies, completely awake. Okay, so now let's start to fill in a little bit of detail, slowly. Buddha nature, what is that? There are three aspects of uh, Buddha nature. First of all, there isn't a word in Sanskrit or Tibetan that actually means Buddha nature. These are the characteristics of the family of everybody who can become a Buddha. That's referring to family traits or characteristics of the Buddha family. 
We're all part of the Buddha family. So, first type of uh, Buddha nature factor are the evolving traits. These are the traits that can evolve, that can grow. And then there are the abiding traits, which uh, always remain the same. They basically explain how things can grow. And then there's the fact that these evolving traits can be inspired to grow. They can be influenced. So things that evolve, that can grow, the, what makes it possible for them to grow, the nature that makes it possible for them to grow, and the fact that they can be stimulated to grow. Very simple scheme. So what are the evolving factors? These are what's usually translated as the two collections. What I usually like to uh, translate as the two networks because they're the networks of many, many different things, not a collection of stamps. So we have a network of positive force that's usually called a collection of merit. But uh, again, the word merit, I don't know about uh, the Russian word for it, but in English it's pretty strange and doesn't quite give the uh, correct meaning. What uh, we're talking about is the positive force of our constructive behavior. And that uh, positive force acts as a positive potential to give rise to results. So it as the whole topic of karma. So we do something nice with a nice motivation, and there's a positive force which is uh, uh, generated by that. It continues uh, on our mental continuum, and it's a potential for us to be nice again. Put it in very simple words. And we do a lot of nice things. And so it's not that you know each little lump of positive force sits there somewhere and accumulates like a collection of stamps, but uh, they all interact and strengthen each other and so on. That's why I call it a network. You know, you have to bring in, if you're familiar with system theory, of how the different aspects within a system work together to produce various results. So it's a whole system of positive force. And it's affected by many, many things that happen in each moment. It grows, it can get stronger, it can get weaker, depending on how we behave, what we do. So, of course, we also have a network of negative force, <laughs> negative potential, but that's not usually referred to as a network or collection, but surely the mechanism is the same. Then, we, uh, the second network is a network of deep awareness, sometimes called, I don't even know what, collection of wisdom or something like that. It's deep awareness, deep in uh, two senses. One is that it's the very depth, deepest of the most primordial, basic way in which, you know, mind works, even in insects. But also it can be deep in the sense of profound. So it has two meanings, which are relevant here in terms of this uh, network of deep force, deep awareness. So, how does the mind work? Uh, basically, um, we take in information. We are able to see the equality of things. We're able to put, you know, this white thing and that white thing 
next to it, together as both being flowers. We can see they're related to each other. They're basically equal. We can see the individuality of things. This flower is not that flower. It's this one over here. We can tell the difference between these two. We know what to do, you know, to do something with it. So, you know, to put it in water or something. You know, we know if we want to go over there, you have to walk to go over there. And we basically know what things are. So the worm has that as well. It takes in information. It sees two items as both being food, but it can tell one from the other. It knows what to do with it. It eat it. And it knows what it is. It might not have a word food, but it knows food. So that's how the mind works. And... Obviously, that can be very limited, or it could be unlimited, like that of a Buddha. We have to develop these qualities, these features, I should say. But we all have that. Everybody has that. And everybody has, so everybody has a network of deep awareness, and everybody has a network of positive force. How do we know that we have a network of positive force? Because one of the things that it brings about, or the technical word is ripens into, is happiness. If we have ever had a moment of happiness in our entire life, that demonstrates that we have a network of positive force. All right, positive force, very uplifting, so makes you happy. So that is very fundamental to uh, become, to understand, right? So accurate and decisive that, uh, yes, I have these two factors, these two networks, and so do you, so does everybody. So does this uh, mosquito. Everybody has it. Yeah, mosquito bites, gets some blood, you know, eats, it's full, feels happy. Why not? Okay, so that's the evolving Buddha nature factors, two networks. Now, they can give rise to very limited type of uh, experience or an unlimited type of experience as a Buddha. Limited type of experiences, when they're mixed with confusion, we get samsara. Samsara, uncontrollably recurring. Rebirth is what it's talking about. Okay, so now the abiding factors, what allows for it to either give rise to samsara or when it's free of confusion and has bodhicitta behind it, the force of bodhicitta behind it, can give rise to enlightenment. The abiding factor is the voidness of the mind, the mental continuum. So what's the difference between whether... These networks give rise to uncontrollably recurring rebirth. You know, so not just moment-to-moment-to-moment existence, but continuing from one lifetime to another. What's the difference between that positive force giving rise to happy samsara, but that happiness never satisfies and is never enough, so it's problematic, or it gives rise to enlightenment, What's the difference? The difference is bodhicitta. 
In other words, if we don't, if we do something positive, you know, we're nice to somebody, and you don't have any dedication to that, at the end of that, of that positive force, then it just contributes to making a nice samsara, just your samsaric building network of positive force. You know, I'm nice to you, I say I love you, and I'm so kind to you, and as a result from that positive force, then maybe it's not this exact person, but you know, in the future, someone else will say to us, I love you, and be nice to us. Well, we all know that somebody saying I love you to us once is never enough, is it? We want to hear it again and again and again. That's not very satisfying, is it? You know, they say I love you and at best it makes us feel good for a little while. But it could be mixed with confusion. You don't really mean that, do you? You're just saying that. So we don't even get the enjoyment from somebody saying, I love you. And our mother says, I love you. And well, that doesn't really count because I want my girlfriend or my boyfriend or my husband and my wife to say, I love you. So mother loves me, man, so what? So <laughs> this is samsara. It's never satisfying. <laughs> So what we want, that's what happens when you don't have any dedication of the positive force. You know, things are nice, but not very satisfying. I mean, think of Facebook. It's a wonderful example. It's never that, you know, we, we have enough likes. I don't need any more likes on my Facebook page. No, we always want more, don't we? And we're checking all the time how many we have. That's suffering, isn't it? <laughs> So, very good example of how much enjoyment do we get from these likes and how much frustration do we get from them because we want more. So, <laughs> um, bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is in our minds, we aim that that positive force contribute to our enlightenment, to the benefit of everyone. That makes a difference. Then it becomes an enlightenment-building network. So for it really to be an enlightenment-building network, it has to be what's called unlabored bodhicitta. Unlabored means that uh, you don't have to work at it. You don't have to build it up through the, these methods, you know, the seven-point cause and effect meditation or equalizing and exchanging self with others. You don't have to build, you know, everybody's been my mother, they've been so kind, you know, all this sort of stuff. You don't have to go through that in order to uh, generate that bodhicitta. You just, bam, you know, you have it. That's unlabored bodhicitta. But even if we don't have that, if we have just our ordinary level of bodhicitta, at least something there, then it's called a facsimile. It works in that direction. It's not the real thing yet, but it contributes in that direction. So fine, good enough. So whether that uh, network of positive force gives rise to samsaric continuation or whether it contributes to enlightenment, 
because of having bodhicitta as the force behind it, in either case, that can only work on the basis of voidness of cause and effect. So that's the abiding nature. And understanding of voidness, of course, is not uh, terribly simple. But uh, if you uh, think of uh, just on a simple level of uh, interdependence, something is only a cause of something else if there's a result. If there's no result, it can't be a cause. And a result can't be a result unless there's a cause. That's right, isn't it? There can't be a child unless, someone isn't a child unless there was a parent, and someone isn't a parent unless they have a child. The two depend on each other, they're relative to each other. So neither of these are, and I'll use a technical term, self-established. They don't establish themselves. What does that mean? A cause doesn't make itself into a cause. It's only made into a cause because it depends on there being a result. It's called dependent arising. A result doesn't make itself to be a result. It can only be a result because it depends on a cause. That's what voidness is all about. Things do not establish themselves. They don't make themselves into themselves just by something inside them. Something inside me makes me a child. Well, no. It's only in relation to the fact that I have parents that I'm a child. Nothing inside me by itself, all by itself, makes me a child. Does it? Nothing makes this a right, right by itself. It only is right because there's left. Otherwise, it would just be a hand. It's only a right hand because there's a left hand. So things depend on each other. That's what voidness means. It's an absence of things establishing themselves by their own power. So, cause, Buddha nature, and result, either samsara or enlightenment, that only works because of voidness. Because that's the abiding Buddha nature, this voidness, this absence of something impossible, that they are just a cause by itself without there being a result. So things can get better or things can get worse. Why? Because things aren't stuck just by themselves. Everything is relative. Everything can be affected by something else. So growth is possible. This is very important thing to be confident of. It is possible to grow because things aren't stuck in just one aspect. So how can they grow? Well, what really helps it is that they can be stimulated. That's the third type of Buddha nature. You know, like a sun can uh, stimulate you know, seeds to grow. So we have inspiration, I call it. Sometimes it's translated as blessing, but uh, that brings in a mysterious aspect, which uh, uh, we don't really need here. 
We can be inspired. This is the role of the teacher. By a good example, we know from child-rearing uh, methods that it's very important for the child to have a model. You know, this is someone that I'd like to become like when I grow up. So if we don't have a model, then in many ways, there's no hope because you don't really know, you know, what am I aiming for? Is it even possible? So the model of the teacher, and now we're talking about a well-qualified teacher, not just anybody that calls himself a teacher, but somebody who's qualified can be very, very inspiring. And the fact that we can be inspired is this third factor of Buddha nature. And not every teacher is going to inspire everybody. You know, we have to find a good fit, you know, but uh, there will be somebody that inspires us. You have to look, look for the person. And it can be many people. It doesn't even have to be a Buddhist teacher. But with this combination of these working factors, these networks of positive force and deep awareness, that this positive force can give rise to either samsara or enlightenment, and that deep awareness can be either mixed with confusion or without confusion. I mean, that's the dividing line there, the understanding of voidness with these different, how the mind works. That is all possible because of voidness of cause and effect and because it can be, there can be inspiration. We can be inspired. And then we use these Buddha figures with uh, all their arms and legs and all the detail and so on as an infographic to weave together all the different aspects of the path, all the understandings, the insights, the practices, etc., so that we can make that transformation on the basis of Buddha nature, two networks, voidness, and inspiration and guidance of the teacher. And then you have Tantra. That's Tantra. So that, I think, is enough for the first level of filling in detail. So we go back to our basic infographic. And now what we have, you know, instead of just the bubble of Buddha nature, we have the two networks, positive force from constructive, nice things we do, deep awareness, how the mind works, and without bodhicitta, it's just going to give rise to nice samsara, boring, we don't want that. Nice, but it never satisfies, never enough. And instead, we want to work on the path, so put it all together with the Buddha figures to, for these networks to give rise to enlightenment with bodhicitta, with the sunshine of the teacher, the tantric teacher, inspiring this growth, this transformation up to enlightenment. So then we try to stabilize that understanding. This is what I'm doing with my tantra practice. I'm not just doing a ritual and playing here with a Vajran bell and, you know, I'm so high, I'm so great. I'm actually doing something that makes sense. So let that sink in for a moment. Two networks, not samsara, Buddha figures, sun shining down, inspiring it, enlightenment, bodhicitta to reach it.
Good. More effective to have even just 30 seconds of good concentration on that with understanding than 20 minutes of mental wandering and not being able to sustain any understanding and struggling. And while doing Tantra practice, if it starts to become meaningless, do another few seconds of the understanding of what am I doing? That's mindfulness. Remember, mindfulness equals remember. That's what mindfulness means. Remember. Okay, so we have uh, some minutes for questions, and uh, during the weekend we'll leave much more time for questions. Are there some signs uh, that would allow us to know that our practice is developing in the correct direction, uh, authentic practice, uh, um, rather than we're getting stuck in a Buddhist Disneyland? Well, first of all, any type of Buddhist practice, like the nature of samsara, is going to go up and down that some days our practice will go well, some days it won't. This is just the nature of samsara, so we have to accept that and not get uh, discouraged. That's why you need perseverance, it doesn't matter. I'm gonna do it anyway. But uh, then I think in general, we need to use the same criteria for measuring success in uh, Tantra as we do success in any Buddhist practice. Remember, the aim of Tantra is not to get the Olympic gold medal of visualizing. That's not the aim. But uh, rather to uh, use the practices to integrate, as I said, like a loom, all the basic sutra practices. So we have to look over a long period of time, several years, and see how do I handle difficult situations? Am I more calm? Am I, uh, you know, my mind clear, more clear? Or mm. uh, in general, the way that it's mentioned in the mind training text, do I have less self-cherishing? Do I think more of others? This mm. is how we measure our progress. So working with these Buddha figures, if we avoid the two extremes of, you know, poor me, I'm so, you know, horrible, or, you know, this arrogant, you know, I'm so cool, I'm doing, you know, this Buddhist, you know, this Tantra practice, I'm so wonderful. If we can avoid those two extremes and avoid smacking this microphone, then we <laughs> have accomplished something. We're getting this somewhere. And particularly, it's helpful to look at the difficult relationships that we have in our life, the people who can annoy us the most, whether it's uh, uh, family members, whether it's the people at work, whether it's our neighbors, whether it's the other people in the traffic. How do we handle that? Are we able to handle that, keep calm, Keep, you know, not self-cherishing, not, you know, curse these people, not, oh, I don't want to be with them, you know, and oh, they're so horrible. You know, it's easy to be okay with your friends. Much more challenging to be with people that are difficult for you. 
And that's where you measure your progress. If your practice is not helping you to improve your daily life and your daily interactions with everybody, you're, not doing, you're doing something wrong. The whole point of Buddhist practice is to apply it to your life. It's not something extra that you do as a hobby on the side that has no relation to your life. Anyone else? Uh, at the beginning, when you explained mindfulness, you gave an example with uh, tying our shoes. And uh, when we tie our shoes, we don't need to think and we don't need to be so much maybe conscious or aware of what we're doing because we do it automatically. We know how we do and we just do without thinking. Mm-hmm. But for instance, if we do somebody's practice um, that also imply a lot of repetitions, uh, like for instance, prostrations in Yondro, um, I would think that we don't need to do it just automatically, uh, just as a mere repetition, uh, but uh, instead we should uh, try to be as much aware as we can during each uh, prostration, for instance. That's true. I think that uh, the uh, confusion here is our understanding of what automatically means. When we tie our shoes automatically, it's with understanding. Automatically doesn't equal no understanding. Automatically means that it is so integrated that you don't have to think about it. So for instance, compassion, helping others, should be so automatic that you don't have to think about it. Of course you're going to help somebody else who needs help. So that's different from mechanical. Mechanical has no meaning to it, no understanding. So we don't want prostration to become mechanical. But the understanding that goes with prostration of, you know, objects of Buddha Dharma Sangha, the meaning of what we're reciting, you know, everything there. That should be, you know, automatic. We don't have to, you know, you know, what is this and, and all of that. It's just there. One last question for this evening. Yes. The question is about the relationships with the difficult people, because uh, naturally it is actually quite difficult, and uh, then we start to think maybe we need to maybe find some other people, some who are better and easier to deal with, and uh, so w- w- when to understand that okay that's enough and we can actually set some border and maybe cut some difficult connections, that the implication is that. Uh, it, ma- it makes sense to cut the connection with difficult people because they're difficult and we can find better. Uh, but if it is helpful, you know, if we check our progress uh, while dealing with difficult people, then uh, to, which, to which extent, maybe, perhaps the question is to which extent we go along with these people, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, if we look at the uh, eight-verse uh, mind training text, it says difficult people are like a precious gem. They're our teacher. Uh, it has uh, three verses uh, like that about uh, how wonderful difficult people are for us to be able to uh, develop uh, patience, positive qualities, and so on. But uh, even if our interaction with this difficult person just causes them to develop more anger, more negative things, then it might be uh, wiser to have a distance, 
not spend so much time with this person, but the important thing is not to give up wishing for the other person to be happy. They're difficult, either because I have difficulty with them, so there's something on my side, or they have, they're miserable. You know, they are acting in a horrible way because they're unhappy, basically. So I wish they would become happy so they'd stop acting so terribly. So love is the antidote there. And even if we do need to keep a distance, at least we wish them well. Let me share a personal example with you. I have a stalker who has been stalking me for maybe the last eight years or so. This is a woman who is seriously schizophrenic and has all sorts of really, really terrifying delusions and thinks I'm some sort of god. And uh, I mean, she's really very, very disturbed. And I uh, tried to help her in the beginning, but I realized that uh, uh, this is way beyond my ability to help her. She needs professional help. She absolutely refuses to uh, get professional help or to see anything is wrong. So she continues to call me. You know, she calls in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning, et cetera, completely, you know, no concept that uh, I'm never going to speak to her. I don't speak with her. As soon as I hear her voice on the phone, I just hang up. You know, I went through that whole phase of, you know, please stop calling me. I can't help you. You need professional help. It's beyond my ability. But I don't get angry when she wakes me up in the middle of the night. And I wish her well. I wish that she could get better. But I don't engage her anymore. That would be absolutely pointless. It's beyond my ability. Sometimes I joke, even my stalker loves At least my stalker loves me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I don't recommend getting a stalker. <laughs> it's really creepy. <laughs> Especially when she shows up at your door. It's really creepy. Let's end with the dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this, may it act as a cause for... Now, this is an important point, not just myself, but everybody being able to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all.